0: The House has now spoken. And I think pretty loudly, pretty clearly with every single Republican voting in favor of moving into this official impeachment inquiry phase, it has now
1: been formalized. A new election year headache for the president. House Republicans have officially opened an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden as they look into the family finances. This morning, continued questions, though, for proof, any proof, of a high crime or misdemeanor.
2: And a big courtroom win for Donald Trump, a judge pushing pause on the federal election subversion case against the former president. So what does it mean now for that March trial date?
1: And a CNN exclusive, U.S. Intel says nearly half of the Israeli munitions dropped on Gaza are, quote, dumb bombs. That means they're unguided, imprecise, and they could be contributed to the staggering civilian death toll. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, House Republicans have officially launched their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, even though they've struggled to say what exactly he did wrong or show any evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors Even after 11 months of digging, Republicans voted along party lines unanimously to formally approve the probe with zero support from Democrats. They denounced the investigation as a political stunt, a stunt ordered by Donald Trump for revenge. After
3: 11 months of this, no one can tell us what President Biden's crime was. They know their whole impeachment inquiry is a sham and it will evaporate into thin air when people realize what a pathetic joke it is. The puppet master in chief, Donald Trump, has directed the sycophants to target Joe Biden as part of an effort to undermine President Biden's reelection.
2: House Republicans are insisting they needed to take this step to give them full subpoena power to gather more evidence, subpoenas, and fight any legal challenges from the White House.
4: We have a simple question that I think an overwhelming majority of Americans have. What did the Bidens do to receive the tens of millions of dollars from our enemies around the world? We're very pleased with the vote today. I think that sent a message loud and clear to the White House. Uh, we expect you to comply with our information requests and our subpoenas.
5: This is an impeachment inquiry. That's all. What are my Democratic colleagues afraid of if there's nothing to see there?
1: CNN's Priscilla Alvarez starts us off this morning live from the North Lawn of the White House. Priscilla, White House officials haven't been holding back their feelings about this inquiry the last several weeks. The president last night making clear his views aren't subtle either.
6: He's calling it, quote, a baseless political stunt. And the president taking time in his statement to also kick off by noting all of the work that's still stalled in Congress, particularly with his supplemental aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel And also border security. And in a statement, the president said the following, quote, instead of doing anything to help make American lives better, they are focused on attacking me with lies. Instead of doing their jobs on the urgent work that needs to be done, they are choosing to waste time on this baseless political stunt that even Republicans in Congress admit is not supported by facts. Now, Republicans have telegraphed for some time now that they plan to open up an impeachment inquiry. Aides here at the White House have been preparing for that possibility. And what they're making clear now is that their focus is on
2: governing and calling this inquiry a political stunt. Phil, So, Priscilla, um, Hunter Biden was also on the Hill yesterday. His role in this really can't be understated. Republicans um, are now talking about moving to hold him in contempt. What more are we hearing from the White House specifically about Hunter Biden?
6: Well, and this is also a sensitive matter for the president. It was front and center yesterday. Now, the president's son, Hunter, rebuked Republicans yesterday and demanded to testify publicly. And in his remarks, he conceded that he made mistakes. But what he also made clear is that this is not grounds for impeachment and that his father was not involved in any of his dealings.
7: My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist.
6: Now, the White House has indicated that they got a heads up before that statement yesterday, saying the president was, quote, familiar with what his son was going to say. But they wouldn't elaborate beyond that, saying what they have said the entire time, that the president loves and supports his son, and they'll leave it at that.
1: You know, Priscilla, as all of this is happening in the House, if you walk across the Capitol, there are actually very real negotiations ongoing about that national security emergency aid package. You've got new reporting on concessions that the Biden administration has been willing to make on the border in order to secure aid to Ukraine and Israel. Is everyone on board with what's been put on the table here?
6: Well, the short answer is no. And allies to the president tell me they're frustrated with what he's willing to give up on the border. These are concessions that taken together would mount amount to a significant shift in immigration law and also in some cases are very similar to what the Trump administration has tried to do. And so Democrats here, according to one source, are really in a box. They're in a position where they're having to embrace or support policies that not long ago they were criticizing and tying directly to the former president, for example, expelling migrants without allowing them uh, the time to make their asylum case. And those are the concessions that the White House is floating and ones that are concerning to his allies.
1: Trying to reach that deal. Priscilla's been doing great reporting on this. Priscilla Alvarez from the White House. Thank you.
2: Right now, President Biden's national security chief is back in the Middle East for what the White House is calling, quote, extremely serious conversations with Israeli officials. And it's a trip that comes just after Biden warned Israel is, quote, losing international support for the war because of its indiscriminate bombing of Gaza.
1: This morning, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows to continue his mission to destroy Hamas. And Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen says the war will, quote, continue with or without international support. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live for us in Tel Aviv, where uh, Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, will be today traveling to the Middle East over the course of the last several days. What do we expect from these meetings, Alex?
8: Well, Phil and Erica, of course, Jake Sullivan is the most senior advisor to President Biden when it comes to the war in Gaza. So this is an extremely pivotal moment. You have countries around the world, including some of America's closest allies, calling uh, for an immediate ceasefire. And that, of course, is something that the U.S. continues to resist. Um, Jake Sullivan, as part of these extremely serious conversations, as they're calling it, he's expected to press uh, the most senior levels, uh, senior ministers uh, in the Israeli government. So the prime minister, the defense minister the war cabinet on uh, their efforts uh, around civilian casualties. He wants to emphasize that the US really wants to see them being more surgical, more precise. uh, When it comes to targeting Gaza, in order to uh minimize the number of civilian casualties but guys of course this is something that the u.s has pushed for for a very long time we continue to see those civilian casualties mounting in a very significant way at the same time sullivan is also expected to pressure the israeli government on getting more aid into gaza uh sullivan himself has been very vocal specifically about the Kerem shalom crossing where i was the other day uh that they want to see that crossing used for aid to go directly into Gaza. Right now, as you guys know, it's going in through the Rafah crossing in Egypt. And these meetings, very, very important meetings, as Israel continues with this high-intensity phase of the war, comes after those very stark pointed comments by President Joe Biden, in which he said that Netanyahu needs to change tack in this war. He criticized the right-wing government for wanting retribution against Palestinians, for fully rejecting a two-state solution, and remarkably, uh, Eric and Phil, the, the the president saying that Israel is carrying out indiscriminate bombing in the Gaza Strip.
2: Um, there's also we want to ask you about this exclusive Alexian and reporting that nearly half of the munitions Israel is using in Gaza are known as dumb bombs, unguided missiles. We're hearing this just happens in a war. Depends on how they're used. What more have you learned?
8: Well, this really does speak to what the president was talking about in terms of the bombing. This assessment is a new U.S. intelligence assessment uh, that my colleagues Natasha Bertrand and Katie Bo Lillis uh, were told about. Uh, The around half of the 29,000 air-to-surface bombs, so bombs that have been dropped by planes, according to this assessment, uh, are so-called dumb bombs or unprecise. They are not precision, precision-guided munitions. So that is 12 to 13,000 bombs that have been dropped on Gaza are not precision-guided. Now, our colleague MJ Lee at the White House asked the White House's John Kirby yesterday how they can square their belief that Israel is trying to protect civilians as much as they can with those comments by Biden about indiscriminate bombing. Take a listen.
7: Sometimes in war, and again, I'm not speaking for the Israelis, sometimes in war, your best plans, your best execution of those plans doesn't always go the way you want it to go. doesn't always go the way you expect it to go.
8: And Erica and Phil, I reached out to uh, the IDF about this assessment. They told me that they do not comment on the munitions that they are using in this war. Erica, Phil.
2: Alex, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Uh, And an important note, just a little bit later here on CNN this morning, our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, will take you inside Gaza to see the humanitarian crisis. This is the first time a Western media outlet has obtained access into southern Gaza to report independently since the start of the war. You'll want to stay with us for that.
1: Well, the Supreme Court taking up critical cases that quite literally could reshape the 2024 election. Abortion access, January 6th, prosecutions, all on the docket, we'll explain next.
2: And Vivek Brumaswamy using his CNN town hall to push his favorite conspiracy theories, his attempt to appeal to the Trump base, next.
9: Reaching and inspiring the next generation of Americans I think I'm the best person in this race to do those things, and that's why I'm in it.
7: This is far more than a campaign. This is the greatest political movement in the history of our country.
2: Dueling campaign events, dueling messages. The same populist appeal, though. Donald Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy campaigning in Iowa just one month before the Iowa caucuses.
1: Both candidates pushing some of the conspiracy theories that have been critical to their campaigns on the trail. Trump speaking in Coralville, Iowa, while Ramaswamy attended the town hall hosted by CNN in Des Moines. And that is exactly where we find our Jessica Dean has been camped out in Iowa the last several days and probably the next five weeks. <laughs> uh, just your takeaway from watching these two candidates last night about the state of the race.
10: Well, yes, it is my new home here in Iowa. They're very friendly and welcoming. Uh, You know, it was interesting to see these two particular candidates hosting or taking part in events last night because you have the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, who's running in the latest polling from the Des Moines uh, Register and NBC News at 51 percent here. And Vivek Ramaswamy, kind of this upstart young candidate at our CNN town hall last night, who is polling in single digits but really trying to go after Trump's base.
7: We're just 33 days away from Iowa, first in the nation. I wonder how you got that. Do you got that because of me? Former President Donald Trump sharpening his closing
10: message to voters in Iowa, mocking his GOP rivals.
7: So we're leading with 51 percent, while Rhonda Sanctimonious is at less than 19 and Haley is at 60. What happened to the Haley surge? You know, There's a surge going on. And launching attacks on President Biden over his fitness. It's just incredible that he can, frankly, be even running anything. He can't put two sentences together. And his handling of the economy. Families all across America are struggling under the brutal weight of Bidenomics. You know, Bidenomics means a lot of bad things.
10: Trump's rally coming on the heels of what his campaign called a big win in the federal election case against him. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin deciding to pause the proceedings while appeals over Trump's immunity unfold. The pause potentially delaying the start of the March 2024 trial, with the Supreme Court also agreeing to expedite consideration of the special counsel's request to rule on the immunity issue.
7: They're fighting like hell because they want to try and get a guilty plea from the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can't imagine because you have presidential immunity. But strange things happen. Meanwhile, at a
10: CNN town hall in Des Moines last night, Vivek Ramaswamy repeatedly trying to appeal to Trump's base, even defending his embrace of a January 6th conspiracy
9: theory. If you had told me that January 6th was in any way an inside job, the subject of government entrapment, I would have told you that was crazy talk. Fringe conspiracy theory nonsense. I can tell you now, having gone somewhat deep in this, it's not. The reality is, we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many. I think it's
11: Mr. shameful. I, if, if I may finish just well, this answer, is, is, is really I'm gonna, important. Now. I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you here because, because you're saying that the establishment were, doesn't approve of this message. I know that there this, were but federal we agents. You're saying that there were federal this is, agents. This is important in the to pad. talk about. <laughs> you you are saying important. there were federal agents in the pad on, on, yes. on January 6th. Yep. There is no evidence that there were federal agents in the crowd on January 6th.
10: The Biden-Harris campaign blasting Ramaswamy, saying, quote, his town hall tonight was an exercise in bombastic rhetoric, offering zero solutions to the real issues that Americans demand action on. Tomorrow, we will be one month away from the Iowa caucuses, which, of course, kick off the 2024 election. In terms of who's in Iowa today, Erica and Phil, just Vivek Grimaswami, he has been all over the state. He holds some seven events today. He had uh, some 10 yesterday. Uh, so he's trying to really crisscross
2: the state. But the election is upon us. Indeed, it is, as is your new residency. And we look forward to seeing you there over the next several weeks, my friend. <laughs> yes. Jess, thank you. <laughs> Uh, Well, these legal issues hitting the Biden and the Trump campaigns, we're gonna take a closer look at how this delay now, this pause in one of Trump's cases could potentially impact the race for the White House.
1: And right now, Russian President Vladimir Putin holding his annual year-end news conference, what he just revealed about his in-game and his war against Ukraine. Stay with us.
12: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
13: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent.
15: Well, this
1: morning, it's looking more likely that the two candidates in the 2024 general election will be facing some perilous legal problems. The House moving forward with its impeachment inquiry of President Biden, even though Republicans have yet to provide any evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors.
2: Donald Trump, of course, is facing 91 federal and state criminal charges. His campaign, though, is calling a new pause in his federal election subversion trial, which is set to begin in March. They're saying it's a win. Let's bring in CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, CNN political and national security analyst and New York Times White House and national security correspondent David Sanger and former Republican strategist and pollster Lee Carter. So, Joey, let's start right there. So we're hearing from the Trump campaign. This pause is a big win, is it?
3: Uh, Not yet. All right. So let's pause a characterization like that. And I'll tell you why. The reality is, is that, of course, he wants to pause it, to slow it down, to potentially become president. And then there's nothing to see here. We don't know that that will occur. We know that in addition to the judge said that they, the judge wasn't vacating the dates, meaning eliminating the dates, but simply pausing them. And we'll revisit the issue of whether those dates could move forward. Now, there will probably be a delay. But we know that as the court reviews this, the D.C. Circuit Court, on an expedited basis, what did Jack Smith do? went and said to the Supreme Court, hey, can you guys take a look at it too? So if the Supreme Court now gets involved and there's an ultimate determination as to no immunity, right? then the case proceeds, the question is when. And so I think the timing question in terms of when specifically it'll move forward is an open question. And if it still happens, but not in March, maybe in May, maybe in June, maybe in July, how big of a win really is that? The big win would be if the Supreme Court said, you have immunity, Or let the appellate court move forward and then after, say the Supreme Court real quick, Supreme Court says no right now. We're not going to hear this to Jack Smith's request. It goes to the appellate court and then the Supreme Court revisits it and there's another pause. Ask me that question. I'll say that's a win because we'll probably get to that potentially after the election. There's a lot of steps here. There are (laughs) a lot of steps. (laughs) Maybe declaring victory. With
2: all of these, there's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, yeah.
1: it turns out the legal system has layers, Entire. tears to some <laughs> <Yes>. degree. <laughs> yes. Can I ask about uh, the impeachment inquiry, the formalization, the vote, every single Republican voting yes, including the 17 Republicans who were in Biden one districts, which I think was always kind of the target yeah. uh, for Democrats trying to oppose this. There's a really clarifying moment uh, with, uh, to a Republican and Democratic congressman in the House Rules Committee. Take a listen. Like the question
16: I'm asking
17: you is- you, Okay, go ahead. Wh-
16: what,
17: what, what is the
16: specific constitutional crime- that you're investigating? Well, we're having an inquiry, so we can do an investigation and control okay. the production of witnesses. <laughs> and, and what is the and, crime and, you're investigating? And documents. With high crimes, misdemeanors, and bribery. What high crime and misdemeanor are you investigating? Look, I, I will, once I get time, I will explain what we're looking at.
1: The reason is the bar of what should launch an impeachment or an impeachment inquiry, I think, is in a very different place now <laughs> than it ever has been in history. And and what I'm trying to figure out is, do people actually care? Like, does this register? Yes, base voters, I assume, care. But I've looked at polling, uh, general election polling, Republican polling. This isn't in the top, even with Republicans, this isn't in the top no, five
18: or six. No, it's not in the top issue. But the, the, the whole issue here is there's a whole lot of theater that goes around this. And, and among the Republican base, there's an, a huge appetite to say there's this two-tier system of justice. 78% of Republicans agree that there's a two-tier system of justice. It seems unfair. And they want the same standards applied to the other side. And so this is really popular among Republican voters. It's not one of the driving forces, but they want to see their their Republican leadership fight back, so to speak. Now, does that mean that there is evidence? Does it mean it's the right thing to do? No. But this is absolutely uh, something that is very popular among especially those Trump supporters who feel like there's this unfair way of, of, of treating the different. And do you
1: think that that's really the primary reason they're doing this?
18: I do. There's also
2: interesting, as we see the reaction from Republicans after that vote yesterday, Mike Lawler of New York, mm. right, Biden-wide district, noting, well, it's not political. He was saying this is about facts and evidence. It's not political. We have to follow the facts and the evidence. To both of your points, is that what we're seeing happening here? Can Republicans just say, hey, look, we have to do this? Is that Is that point selling?
19: You could go off and do that without having a formal vote on an impeachment inquiry. Obviously, they've been doing that now for months, right? So what's interesting here is whether or not we have now routinized the idea of impeaching anybody for whom there is even the vaguest suspicion with no real evidence out there. And that's not really what the founders had in mind about impeachment. I mean, this was supposed to be a truly rare event. You know, we went a long, long way, uh, you know, from, from uh, getting to impeachment, one impeachment in the, in the 1800s up until till Bill Clinton. And now, where are we? I think what's really driving this in the end is that Donald Trump was outraged that he was twice impeached and basically just demanded, I want an impeachment of Biden. He didn't really care about what the impeachment was over. So we've got a set of uh, an impeachment inquiry in search of some, some evidence and I charges. I do
18: think, though, that there are a fair amount of Republicans who think that there's something to see here. I think there's a lot of people who say that there's money that's changed hands, it doesn't make sense, and they want to understand it. They want it to be transparent. And to your point, it doesn't necessarily need to be in an impeachment inquiry. Yeah. But you can there that. are a lot of people who say— there's something really not right happening. So here.
3: let's say that's true. Is that the vehicle? If something's not right, right, that's why we have investigations. Mm-hmm. We have investigations to determine whether or not there's something to see here. And to say we're going to launch an impeachment inquiry into the clip you played to find out what we need to find out if there's something wrong, what's the high crime and misdemeanor? We're investigating. What did he do? We'll let you know. What is that? You you get an impeachment inquiry or you move to impeachment when there's some firm legal basis. How about we do the investigative work first? How about we do the homework first? How about we have a core issue? And then if there's something to see, you have an impeachment. But we're going to impeachment inquiry to find out if there's something to find out where we can impeach you. It. We have to have a justice system that works. We have to have a process politically that works. And this, to me, seems like retaliation, David, to your point. It
2: reminds me of something you said, Wise. I think it was you the other day, Phil, when I was watching. If it was Wise? Just note, if it was Wise, it was definitely Phil Mattingly, for the record. (laughs) Just about what has worked, right? And to your point about we all have questions, it's the throwing out there of the, but what if, but what if? And it's not just Republicans that do it. The yeah. looks terrible. But that's there's exactly, no way it was
1: worth $10 yes. million dollars to be doing X, Y, or Z. However, there's never been a direct connection to the president, certainly during his presidency. Um, Let's we'll watch this play out. The threshold is certainly different. Guys, stay with us. Thank you. Well, there is a new challenge to abortion access. It's heading to the Supreme Court. In this case, could bring new restrictions to a post-Roe America. What that means.
2: Plus, a vacation turned into a rescue on the high seas, a Carnival cruise ship helping to save six people stranded in the water near the Dominican Republic. Carnival's vista was on its way to the northern coast when the ship captain got an emergency alert about a small cargo vessel that had capsized. This happened yesterday morning. Well, the ship raced to the scene, officers pulled them on board. The men do appear to be okay. The ship then continued to make its way to the DR following a rescue.
1: Well, abortion access in a post-Roe America, not just center stage for the politics, it's returning to the Supreme Court on the legal side, one of the several high-profile cases that could shape the upcoming election year.
2: The justices will take up a case that could restrict the abortion drug Mephapristo nationwide. It is their first case related to abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned, of course, last year. They'll also hear a case that could upend the prosecutions of Donald Trump and January 6th. Rioters at stake there, whether federal prosecutors can use a specific provision to charge them.
1: And the Supreme Court must also weigh whether to decide if Trump has immunity from criminal prosecution for the alleged crimes he committed in office. Joining us now is CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupik. Other than that, though, pretty Mm. chill term ahead. Um, (laughs) On on Mifepristone, which which we've spoken about a lot since the night that this all started kind of heading in this direction, the FDA has made several (laughs) changes over recent years to increase accessibility to the abortion pill by allowing the drug to be taken later in pregnancy, mailed directly to patients in states that allow abortion access. Explain how these changes are at the heart of the appeal.
20: Sure, Phil, morning to you and Erica. And you're right, I remember, you know, when this all started a few months ago when these lower court judges started to restrict access to Mifepristone. You know, we're in a whole new front now uh, in the national controversy over abortion. And the specific regulations here date not to the year 2000, when it was approved, But to starting in 2016, when the FDA started to relax some of the regulations around the drug, saying that women could have access to it up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, not just up to seven weeks of pregnancy, that non-physicians could be um, prescribing and dispensing it as well as physicians. And then also when it came time to actually get the drug um, after consultation with a a physician, uh, that it could be by mail rather than in person. So all those things. Made it more available, and the FDA said the reason it had decided that is just because uh, the pr- prior restrictions were not that were uh, more strict, just were not necessary for the safety and effectiveness in the drug, and those that that's one of the key things here. It's not just the availability of a medication abortion that is now the main way that women. Uh, end pregnancies in America, but also the authority of the Food and Drug Administration to decide what is best for this drug, rather than have lower court judges uh, second-guess that.
2: Yeah, and that's a big part of the challenge. It would be fascinating to see the fallout, depending on that decision. Um, The Supreme Court also announced, Joan, on Wednesday that it is going to consider whether part of a federal obstruction law can be used to prosecute some of the rioters who were involved in the January 6th attack. What's the impact on former President Trump's election interference case potentially.
20: Okay, so that one, there's an open-ended question there. The statute at issue, Erica, says it makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. And it's one of many, uh, parts of federal law that, um, these January 6 rioters cases have been brought under. Uh, and so this, this would definitely affect the case of the man, Joseph Fisher, who is challenging this law as part of his prosecution. But it could have reverber- reverberations to the other cases, including Donald Trump's. But I do want to remind everyone that Donald Trump has, faces a multitude of charges from the special counsel, Jack Smith. So while this case could inform some of what happens with Donald Trump, uh, he's more broadly, uh, uh, he has been more broadly charged. Uh, and probably the really key thing there is, I I know what you and Phil are aware of, is the fact that he's he's saying he should be immune from everything in a criminal prosecution right now. And that's the other part of the case that's up at the Supreme Court.
1: I really thought we were going to get into a debate about Sarbanes-Oxley and said you shorthanded it. Joan, I'm very disappointed in that fact. Oh, this is a very deep cut reference. Uh, can I step back for a minute and from a big picture perspective? Sure. There's so much opacity that surrounds the court. You actually have a window in somehow, some way, which continues to impress me into what people are thinking and when. Did you have a sense of whether the justices actually have a sense of when these cases will be landing and the fact that that's in the middle of an election year and the stakes here?
20: I'm sure on Monday, Phil, when the Supreme Court got that request from special counsel Jack Smith to intervene in the Trump uh, you know, election subversion case, they were very well of suddenly being thrust into this role. And as you and Erica said when you opened it, going right into an election year. So they... I'm, I'm sure they are aware of the atmospherics. The, the question, though, Phil, is which which ones care and mm. and and should they care? You know, they're supposed to be deciding the law. But this is these are things that are going to have consequences for everyone. And as people go to the polls in November. So it's I'm sure it's on their mind. It's just a matter of, you know, how that factors into things and whether it should truly. Yeah, Phil. yeah.
1: that's it's a, a really great point. Joe, Ms. Kupik, we appreciate you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Rudy Giuliani could testify as early as today in his defamation case. One of the election workers suing him, revealing her biggest fear following Giuliani's lies.
1: And new reporting this morning on the wildly popular injectable weight loss drugs. They could be fueling a secret surge across America. What we mean, stay with us.
7: Ruby Friedman, uh, she's a vote scammer, a professional vote scammer and hustler ruby
2: freeman that was former president trump when he was still in office attacking one of the election workers who is now suing his former lawyer rudy giuliani it's audio that could now play a pivotal role in the defamation case against giuliani his defense is expected to begin today he told reporters he does intend to testify
1: now it's important to note giuliani has already been found liable for defaming ruby freeman and her daughter shay moss accusing them of changing votes during the 2020 election That never happened. Everything he said has been a lie and has been proven in court. This trial is to determine how much money those two will get.
2: Freeman testified yesterday telling the court about the threats that Giuliani's lies created and how they ruined her life, spawning death threats from his supporters, saying, quote, I took it as though they were going to cut me up and put me into trash bags and take it out to the street. Joey Jackson, Lee Carter, and David Sanger are back with us. Every time I hear... Ruby Freeman or Shamash speak, I am reminded of that initial testimony and those moments and the way this literally ruined their lives. How much impact, Joey, is this having in this moment?
3: So think about what you just said, Erica, right? You're a juror, right? You're a juror out there because you're someone who's evaluating what you're hearing. That's what jurors do. Not a juror in the sense that you're on the panel, but you're having an emotional reaction and a connection with the impact that this had. Going back, what is defamation? False statements that are injurious to your reputation. Statements have consequences. We've heard not only what we heard about Trump saying these things about Ruby Friedman, Ruby Freeman, and what she did, which were not true by the way, but we heard the venom from the public with respect to we're gonna hang you, we're gonna do all these things to you. What am I saying? We're at the damage phase. The jury has to assess How did this damage you? How was your life changed? What should the consequences be for that? And our system of justice converts that to money. And not only are you allowed to consider the actual damages, I had to move away from my home, what it did to my child, et cetera. My life's not the same. But what about the emotional damages and stress? And what about the jury wanting to punish? That's what punitive damages are. So when you hear that and then you hear the president buttoning this up saying things that are not true, that's a big bully pul- pulpit that affects a lot of people. That's damages 101. I would expect, unless this defense is amazing on Giuliani's portion, that there's going to be a verdict for a, a lot of zeros.
1: Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's not a really amazing defense that you can give to some degree, although maybe if you were his lawyer, Joey. You were very um, David, What's so striking about hearing that sound, again, it's from, it's sound we've all heard a million times right. uh, in the wake of the, the call with, with Brad Raffensperger, is Donald Trump is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. Donald Trump is leading in general election polls across the country. Donald Trump played a critical, central role in the, I mean, to some degree, destruction of two women's lives who were just there to help count votes. How
19: is that possible? You know, a couple of things strike me looking at this, film or listening to it. The first is that he was so into the details that he was repeating her name, you know, a good number of times in in the course of this. Um, Second, that as this argument played out, it was clear that whatever Rudy Giuliani was doing was basically echoing the boss and trying to make sure he was in the boss's good graces. But we're listening to that and thinking not about whether Rudy Giuliani is going to get um, uh, have to do a huge payment here if he has the money. We're thinking ahead to the Georgia case if it, if it comes to trial because the impact of that is you're hearing the president from the White House making this case, and that's the really interesting element to this. In the one case that's come out there where he could not uh, pardon himself one where he could not order the Justice Department to, to take it apart. Now, if he gets elected, it's very possible that that case against him gets suspended while he is, while he is president.
2: It's remarkable, too, as you, as you look at all that. And when and we look at right, the widespread support mm-hmm. that the former president still has, the number of people who are still on board with these election lies, that the election was stolen, no matter how many times that sound may be played from yeah. these two women, it's not necessarily hitting people who need to hear it. And we find ourselves back in the same place over and over again.
18: We absolutely do. It, it's, it, it is kind of astounding when you look at even the most recent Iowa polls, 75% of Republicans say that they think that Trump has the best chance of beating Joe Biden. You look at Morning Consult just came out with some polls in the seven most important states that have Donald Trump way ahead of Joe Biden in the states that are going to matter the most. And so the question really becomes, does this matter? I think one of the problems is there's so many different cases against him, that it's almost too much. It's like the—I I feel like there should be like the feng shui of cases against him so that they become more focused. And if we just really focused on Georgia, if we just focused on what happened there, there might be more of an impact. But because there's so many different charges that people are just willing to dismiss them. And the people hear what they want to hear. They only want to listen and tune into what they want to hear to reconfirm what they already believe. Republicans, by and large, whether we like it or not, believe that there's an unfairness that's been treated to There's a, a different standard that's been applied to Donald Trump than anyone else. Seventy eight percent believe that. Sixty four percent of them want to see him fight back. They don't believe that this is all on Donald Trump. And it is really no matter how many times you play the audio, no matter how many times it happens, the, the, the thing is not changing. And when you look at his polling numbers, it is just he continues to go up and up and up.
1: Well, and you pair it with, and we heard it last night in Iowa, the are you better off than you were four years ago message, three years ago message, which every president or every uh, person running against an incumbent wants to use. And even Democrats, when you look at the polling, uh, they're not supporting Trump, but they don't feel like they were better off four years ago. And so the weaponization hits a key segment of the Republican Party, no question about it. But the are you better off, I would assume, is probably the, the message that overtakes more broadly where he's at right
18: That's now. right. And, and when you look at independent voters who he's really trying to reach, you know, there's a huge, about two-thirds of them are saying they're worse off today than they were before. And so that is something that really resonates with them. You look at the primary issue that people are looking at, they're saying it's the economy is one of the most important issues. Most say that Donald Trump would be better on the economy. The one caveat I will say is I think everybody's underestimating the importance of abortion. We were just talking yep. about that. And seven in ten independent women say that's a primary thing that's going to drive them to the polls 9 in 10 Democratic women, I think it is completely underestimated by the Republican Party, and it's not factored into everything at this point. Lee, Joey, David, thank you
1: all. Well, this morning, CNN is going inside Gaza as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan heads to Israel. We visit the field hospitals where civilians are being treated and face a growing humanitarian crisis. Stay with us.
12: More CNN This Morning to
15: come after the break.
1: Well, happening right now, Russian President Vladimir Putin holding his end-of-the-year marathon news conference coming just days after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's trip to Washington asking for more military assistance.
2: And also this morning, new shelling in the Ukrainian city of Kherson killed a 63-year-old woman, according to local officials. Homes and apartment buildings just
1: destroyed.
2: CNN's Fred Pleikin is live in Berlin with more now about uh, Mm. Putin and this message. It is always a marathon, as Phil said, his message about the war, Mm -hmm. Fred.
16: All right. Yeah, absolutely. It is a marathon. He's going on almost three hours now, Erica. So we can certainly call it a marathon. You're absolutely right. The war in Ukraine, obviously, left, right, and uh, center uh, in this uh, press conference. We see Vladimir Putin very confident. One of the things that he's been saying is that he believes right now the Russians have the initiative on the battlefield. He claims that they are pushing the Ukrainians back. Even though, of course, we know the Russians have suffered some pretty really devastating losses over the past couple of days, the past couple of weeks. His message to the Ukrainians this morning is: give up. Or else? I want to listen to some of what Vladimir Putin had to say.
15: Either we will agree on demilitarization, agree on certain parameters. And, by the way, during the negotiations in Istanbul, we agreed on them. But then they threw these agreements into the oven. But we had agreed on them. Or there are other possibilities, either to reach an agreement or to resolve it by using force. This is what we will strive for.
16: Dissolve it by using force. Obviously, a very clear message from Vladimir Putin. Also, spoke about the issues for the Ukraine funding in Congress in the U.S., as well, saying he believes that, as he put it, the freebies for Ukraine are quickly running out, guys. Uh, Fred, I, I
1: believe Putin was also asked about wrongfully detained American journalist Evan Grishkovich. Uh, he alleged <laughs> that I think the yeah. U.S. had some role here or isn't
16: without guilt. What did he say? Mm. Yeah, he he, he certainly was asked uh, about that. He says that right now there are talks going on uh, between the United States and Russia. First of all, he does say, look, there's a process going on and he was arrested uh, and and obviously trying to justify all that. But he does say that right now there are talks going on between Russia uh, and uh, the United States about the matter. He, of course, says he can't go into details. But he did say, and I think this is quite important, that he says, I hope that we will find a solution. But I repeat, the U.S. side should also make a decision that will agree with the Russian side as well. Of course, the U.S. has been saying that they've been making significant offers to the Russians to try and get Evan Gershkovich back right now. As of right now, that hasn't happened. Certainly, the Russians are saying the talks are ongoing, but it certainly also seems that the Russians have some pretty clear things in mind that they want for the U.S. from things to move forward, guys. All right, Fred Blinken, I'm sure there's many hours ahead. Please keep us
1: posted. Thank you.
2: <laughs> and CNN This Morning continues
1: right now
23: votes to authorize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. They
1: want to dilute the stain of Trump's two legitimate impeachments.
7: You bring people in for an interview where you can get those facts. I've been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine. The next economic boom will begin the instant crooked Joe Biden is gone. This
24: message was really about the primary election.
9: We do have a government that has lied to us systematically over the last several years.
14: It's all platitudes and cliches and spreading of conspiracy theories.
5: Donald Trump's federal election interference case. The judge ordering a pause.
6: The Court of Appeals is considering issues that could render the entire thing moot.
2: President Biden meeting with the families of eight Americans still held hostage by Hamas. It's the
9: results that count. The reality of global opinion also matters.
25: Absolute horrors in Gaza. It was chilling. It was harrowing and a very sobering experience.
1: Good Thursday morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill. Poppy is off today, and today is a day, or at least day one, of House Republicans having voted to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. It's a step they say they think will strengthen their oversight powers as they investigate Biden and his family's alleged foreign business dealings. Now, every single Republican voted to authorize the inquiry, even though the year-long investigation up to this point has failed to uncover wrongdoing by the president. And many acknowledge that they haven't found enough evidence to actually impeach Biden.
9: Do you have proof that Joe Biden acted corruptly to help his son? The impeachment inquiry is not about proof.
15: And
17: I don't know that you're going to see a high crime or misdemeanor.
9: How close are you to being ready to support impeachment, actual impeachment of the president? We're not there.
2: GOP leadership has made clear that formalizing the inquiry does not mean impeaching the president is inevitable. Republicans argue, though, the move was in response to stonewalling by the Biden administration when it comes to handing over documents. The president responding shortly after that vote saying, quote, instead of doing their job on the urgent work that needs to be done, they are choosing to waste time on this baseless political stunt. Now That vote unfolded hours after the president's son, Hunter Biden, defied the Republican investigator's subpoena for closed door testimony yesterday after he had demanded, of course, to testify publicly. GOP committee leaders say the vote sends a message loud and clear to the White House.
4: Evidence uncovered uh, has shown a very disturbing trend by the Biden family. We've spent months in this investigation accumulating evidence. Uh, we have a simple question that I think a overwhelming majority of Americans have. What did the Bidens do to receive the tens of millions of dollars from our enemies around the world?
1: And we begin this hour with the spokesman for the White House special, or special, the White House Counsel's Office, Ian Sams. Uh, Ian, appreciate you being here this morning. I, I want to start with what uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan said yesterday about the rationale for having the formalized vote, saying, he, quote, thinks it will help us get key individuals in to speak with us in a more timely fashion and get us documents that Mr. Comer has been after for a while. Is that true?
17: No. Uh, these guys have uh, made up and moved the goalposts every step of the way of this investigation. It's all baseless. They've been investigating the president all year long. For example. They've gotten 100,000 pages of documents. They've interviewed witnesses for 40 hours. And guess what? They've come up with not a single shred of evidence of any wrongdoing of any kind by President Biden. Yet, they're storming ahead with this impeachment stunt anyway to please their far-right base and play politics. And it really cheapens what is a historically grave constitutional remedy of last resort. They're using it almost like a, you know, like a, like a political attack ad. And they're going to keep doing this over and over and over again because every time they float a claim about the president, a claim of wrongdoing, it gets debunked and they get embarrassed. And what's really unfortunate is that the entire Republican conference has now gone along with this stunt. Instead of taking action on real priorities, on real issues... That are facing the country and the world as we head into the end of the year, yeah. and these Republicans are leaving town for a month without acting. You know,
1: to that point, the the unanimous Republican vote I think would have surprised people three or four years, three or four weeks ago. Uh, one of the reasons, or the primary reason, that a lot of moderate Republicans or Republicans from Biden one districts, particularly in places like New York, said they needed the tools. Right, they needed this was going to give them the ability to, as uh, Chairman Jordan was saying, have people come in, do more of the investigation which was in part driven by your own special counsel from the White House counsel's office, citing a Trump-era Office of Legal Counsel opinion that said, without a formal vote, you could not have the compulsory process that comes with impeachment power.
17: So I guess, did the White House dare them to go down this path? Well, there's a process you're supposed to follow in congressional oversight, and these guys just haven't followed it. They've blazed right through. We've offered over and over and over again throughout this Congress to meet with them, to talk with them, to hear about any legitimate informational needs that they may have. And time and time again, they've ghosted us. They don't respond to questions that we have for them. They don't reach out to have meetings. So they've just blazed through this process. And there's a reason why. The reason why is that this is a preordained outcome. Don't forget Marjorie Taylor Greene, who right now is probably the most powerful member of the House Republican Conference, introduced articles of impeachment on day one of Joe Biden's presidency, before he could even be the president, do anything. They've they've decided from the moment that he took office that they were going to impeach him. And this is a natural continuation of that process. And now what they've done is wasted millions and millions of taxpayer dollars on a fishing expedition trying to drum up an excuse for it. So let's and I so want to ask you about blazed the blazed through this process wrongly. And, and I don't think that that's a fair characterization. Um, and I think that as the facts come out, people will see that. On the point you're making now, the, the question
1: has been what what underpins uh, the process here? What underpins the allegations here? And Speaker Mike Johnson in a USA Today opinion piece laid out what he said or the accusations that they are currently pursuing. They include, from 2014 to 2019, Biden family members and affiliates have more than $15 million from foreign entities. There are 22 examples of President Biden speaking or meeting with Hunter Biden's foreign business associates. Payments to President Biden from Hunter Biden's business account. An interim report saying there's special treatment of Hunter Biden from the Justice Department. A credible FBI source giving information about alleged bribe to then Vice President Biden. And that the president and the White House have lied multiple times about his involvement in his family's business schemes. Do you dispute all of those just outright?
17: Not only do I dispute those outright, they've been debunked time and time again. Just two days ago, the day before the House held this vote, Republicans in Congress were telling your colleagues in the media that there is no evidentiary basis for them to pursue impeachment, that they've seen nothing. They don't see the grounds for it, is what a Republican senator told Politico. So they're just making up lies to attack the president in a relentless smear campaign that, frankly, has been going on for four straight years now. We went through an impeachment in the last administration over these same made-up allegations, and Republicans in the House are just rewinding the tape and running it again to try to score political points against the president instead of doing their actual jobs for the American people. Ian, one and, of the and you pointed out one of those things. I want, I want to, they, they act like they get these smoking guns and they create a ton of attention and energy and they act, they send the siren emojis on Twitter. And it turns out last week, for example, one of those payments that they're talking about was about a pickup truck. yeah I mean, it was these the are car the kinds loan. of things that they're, these are the kinds of things that I they're understand. making up I to, to attack the president. I do want
1: to ask, the president. Ian, uh, while I have you, Hunter Biden had a very public moment yesterday outside of the house saying he wanted to testify publicly, would not meet behind closed doors. Uh, with House Republicans, uh, the White House just said the president was aware that uh, Hunter Biden was going to do that, was aware of what he was going to say. Did he agree with the strategy of doing that? Will not be able to take
17: any questions today. Well, look, I'm not going to get into uh, father's conversations with his son, except to say Hunter's a private person; he can make his own decisions about how to handle these sorts of things. But the president loves and is very proud of him. He overcame a very dark period in his life and has stood tall, and is on the, and is in recovery, and. Also, it should be pointed out something that's getting lost. Hunter offered to testify publicly and transparently. He offered, and the House Republicans rejected it. And it gets to the point of what they're doing here. They'll never be satisfied. They're gonna continue attacking over and over and over again, no matter what facts come out, no matter what the truth is. And what's really scary about what's happening right now is they're abusing such a grave constitutional process to do it.
1: In the statement that Hunter Biden made, yesterday, he said, let me state as clearly as I can. My father was not financially involved in my business. He was unequivocal about that. But that is an evolution of where the president had been during the campaign, where the White House had been at the start of the administration. Not involved financially in the business is very different than never talked about the business, not been involved in the business at all. Was that an intentional point of clarity, do you think?
17: I actually dispute the whole premise of that question. It's, Why? It's one of Jim Jordan's favorite little shiny objects is to try to take a semantic thing and make an argument that is that is somehow far afield from what they're actually focused on. We've been extremely clear over and over again for years and nothing has changed. The president was not in business with his son, period. They're trying to make up all sorts of allegations Ian, and make with, up lies- with respect, I'm not citing Jim
1: Jordan here. I was in on. some of the White yeah, House sure. press briefings where it was said explicitly the president did not talk to his son about business dealing. That, that is very clearly not the case. And I think the statement from the White House has changed uh, and I think been a little bit more precise over the course of the last several months, is what the president said on the campaign trail as well. I'm not saying this is like an impeachable offense or uh, some grand uh, indictment, but it is a fact that the president said one thing that ended up being not true.
17: Again, I dispute that that's, that that's true. I, that is not true. The truth is that he wasn't in business with his son. The Republicans have been for years trying to make arguments. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that he was in, in business with his son. And over and over again, those have been refuted. And so what they do is they try to take semantic games and try to distract from the actual truth, which is that all of these things have been debunked. These allegations are false. And they're using their power in Congress to launch this impeachment inquiry over false allegations that have no basis in reality.
1: It is certainly center stage for House Republicans, as, as you noted, very critical negotiations about the President's national security supplemental are ongoing, at least on the Senate side. Ian Sams, we appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Turning now to a CNN exclusive, a U.S. intelligence assessment shows nearly half the bombs Israel has dropped on Gaza since the Hamas attacks on October 7th are what are referred to as dumb bombs. And that's the name they have because they are imprecise and unguided. The assessment says those dumb bombs are likely contributing to the soaring civilian death toll. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon this morning with more on this reporting. We're hearing, hey, this is sort of what happens in a war. What more, though, have you learned, Natasha?
21: Well, Erica, we're learning that the intelligence community assesses that of the 29,000 air-to-ground munitions that Israel is estimated to have dropped on Gaza over the last two-plus months. Roughly 40 to 45 percent of those munitions have actually been unguided dumb bombs. And that is really significant because it could be contributing, as you said, to the soaring civilian death toll in the Gaza Strip. Because those dumb bombs are extremely imprecise and they are are known to miss their targets, unlike uh, precision guided missiles, which of course can also miss their targets, but at least they are guided in a way that allows them to be a little bit more accurate. And so experts that we spoke to said that this is really concerning because the Israeli military does have access to precision guided munitions. The U.S. has provided the Israelis with thousands of uh, bomb kits that allow them to transform these dumb bombs and their unguided, uh, unguided uh, munitions into smart bombs that, again, allows them to be a little bit more... Precise. Um, But look, the White House has really uh, been struggling to answer questions about the uh, discrepancy between what President Biden has called an indiscriminate bombing campaign with uh, the White House's claims that Israel is doing everything that it can to protect civilians, something that experts said is directly undercut by the US assessment that they are not using the most precise munitions in their arsenal. Here's what National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said when pressed on this discrepancy yesterday.
7: Sometimes in war, and again, I'm not speaking for the Israelis, sometimes in war, your best plans, your best execution of those plans doesn't always go the way you want it to go. It doesn't always go the way you expect it to go.
21: So, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, he is going to be in Israel today and tomorrow, and he is going to be discussing with the Israelis the fact that the U.S. expects them to be more precise and more surgical in their campaign in Gaza, because according to the Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health, over 18,000 Palestinian civilians—Palestinians, uh, I should say—have been killed uh, over the last two months of war, and the use of these dumb bombs, which the U.S. has criticized other countries for using in wars zones, uh, really is not helping the case that the Israelis are trying to make, that they're doing everything that they can to protect civilians, Erica.
2: Natasha Bertrand, really appreciate the reporting this morning. Thank you.
1: Well, the federal judge in Donald Trump's election interference case now pressing the pause button while she's stepping back as an appeals court steps in.
2: Plus, abortion access will once again go before the conservative-leaning Supreme Court, the case the justices are set to decide on in the new year.
1: You're looking at a beautiful December morning in New York City and, well, move down to Washington a little bit and you understand there are some major, major legal issues ahead. A federal judge hitting the brakes on Donald Trump's 2020 election interference case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, has now paused all procedural deadlines while appeals over a major issue play out. Special counsel Jack Smith has asked the Supreme Court to decide whether Trump has any immunity from criminal prosecution for alleged crimes he committed while in office. Chutkin's order would allow the, appeal, the appeals process to run its course, which could end up delaying the March 2024 trial date. Joining us now to explain a lot of legal issues and a lot of important ones at that, CNN senior legal analyst,
4: Ellie Honig. All right, walk us through what we heard from Judge Chutkin and what it means. Yeah, these are really big developments in the Trump trial. First of all, we're talking about, of the four cases, the one we're focused on today is the federal DOJ Jack Smith indictment of Donald Trump relating to 2020 election interference. Now. Donald Trump has made the argument that he has criminal immunity, cannot be prosecuted because he alleges what he did was within the scope of his federal job as president. The district judge, Tanya Chutkin, rejected that. She said, no, you're not immune. Now, ordinarily, what would happen next is Donald Trump would appeal up to the Court of Appeals and then maybe up to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, what Jack Smith has done here is asked to do a shortcut. Basically, he says, I want to skip The Court of Appeals, U.S. Supreme Court, I want you to take the case directly. It's something they don't do often, but they do from time to time. A couple major things happened yesterday. First of all, the Court of Appeals issued a ruling saying, if we get the case, if we don't get skipped, we're going to mega expedite this thing. We're going to move as quickly as possible. The other big thing is Judge Chutkin said, while all this is playing out, I'm going on pause. She's actually legally required to do that. DOJ and and Donald Trump actually agreed that she had to do that, and she said, yes, you're right. So she has to stop everything she's doing while this case is playing out through the appeals.
2: So then the question becomes, how does that impact, right? A trial that was set to begin in March, the Trump campaign, for its part is saying, hey, this is a big win for the former president. How does that actually play out?
4: Yes, the calendar is so important here, so let's take a quick look. Today is December 14th. This trial is currently scheduled to start 81 days from today, On March 4th. But here's the problem. It's going to take, even if this gets mega expedited, even if the Supreme Court takes it directly and moves as fast as possible, that's going to give us a ruling from the Supreme Court probably sometime in February. Now, let's say they keep the case on track. Let's say they reject the immunity argument. You can't just resume the case in the middle of February and then go to trial. Three weeks later, because there's so many things that would be happening right now. Discovery, pretrial motion. So in all likelihood, assuming we get a ruling sometime late January into February, this March 4th date is just not going to hold. It's going to have to move back.
1: So the Supreme Court decided they're going to take up a case related to a January 6th rioter yes. and his presence in the Capitol Why does that connect to President Trump?
4: Yeah, so this is a guy nobody's really heard of, named Joseph Fisher, one of the January 6th rioters. He was charged and convicted for obstruction of an official. Proceeding the theory was he was trying to delay Congress from counting up the electoral votes. Dozens of January 6th rioters were charged this way. He challenged this legally. He said, the obstruction law does not apply to trying to interfere with Congress. What happened on January 6th? Everyone who's brought this case has lost. The courts have said, no, it does apply. The big development yesterday is the Supreme Court says, we're going to take a look. We want this case. Now, here's the problem for Donald Trump for the, well, good for Donald Trump, problem for Jack Smith. Two of the four charges against Donald Trump are that exact statute. So if the Supreme Court says obstruction does not apply to January 6th, these two charges are out of the case against Donald Trump. So where does Jack Smith go from here? He has three options. None of them are great. Trial then Hope, he hope can,
2: is a real legal, that's a, that's, that's yeah, a legal option? It's a, a
4: legal option, option. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly, hope, right, not a strategy. I don't think he's going to do this one. He can just try the case and then hope the Supreme Court comes out the right way. But if he tries it and then gets a conviction and then the Supreme Court overturns it, mm-hmm. he could lose the whole case. Second of all, he can just drop those two charges, proceed on the other two. That would be seen as a big win for Donald Trump that would potentially gut his case. And then finally, he can wait. He can say, let's see what the Supreme Court rules and then we'll hold the trial. But that's going to take months. It wouldn't surprise me to see Jack Smith or DOJ say, hey, Supreme Court, again, we need you, if possible, to expedite this so we can try our case after you rule. This, there's a lot going on. We appreciate it. Sure you going is. Going. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. thanks.
2: Uh, family members whose loved ones were and are still being held by Hamas. Met with President Biden at the White House. Up next, we'll be joined by Liz Neftali to learn more about that meeting and where things stand this morning. You may recall her four-year-old great niece was released more than two weeks ago. She joins us more in yesterday's meeting.
12: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is set to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet today. The White House says Sullivan will hold what it's calling extremely serious conversations about Israel's war effort. This is the U.S. pressures Israel for a more surgical campaign against Hamas in Gaza. And all of this, of course, coming just a day after President Biden hosted relatives of the eight Americans held hostage by Hamas for their first in-person meeting.
3: It was a terrific, terrific meeting and conversation. We felt that and we felt before and we were only reinforced in seeing and believing that we could have no better friend in Washington or in the White House than President Biden himself and his administration.
2: Joining us now is Liz hirsch She's the great aunt of a four-year-old Israeli-American, Abigail Don, who, of course, was released by Hamas about two weeks ago. Liz, it's good to have you back with us today. Um, after that meeting yesterday, um, you came out and you were speaking as well, as we just heard from Jonathan there. What, what was your takeaway in that meeting about the commitment of President Biden and this administration to bringing these other hostages home, whether they're American citizens or not?
24: Well, as Jonathan said, who's the father of a hostage, uh, first, thank you for having me. Uh, but as Jonathan said, that we, we could have no better partner than President Biden in the White House um, and Secretary Blinken and their whole team. And the, the meeting really was an opportunity for these families, American families uh, of sons, daughters, mothers, fathers to have an opportunity to share their stories and for the President Secretary Blinken to hear these stories. And the one thing that they assured us and that we we know is that they are doing everything in their power, really 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to work with the Israeli government um, to make the hostages a priority, the American hostages and all these hostages, there's over 110 hostages. and. So while we didn't get information about what is going to happen, what we did get was confirmation that the president is making this his number one priority. And I'll just add that we hope that the Israelis will make the hostage release their priority. Mm -hmm. And we continue to be appreciative and and keep urging the Qatar government and the Egyptian government and all the people that can to really make sure that these hostages can come home. It's been 69 days.
2: The the director of Mossad was set to go to Doha to restart hostage talks. That is now not happening. In fact, sources telling CNN that um, a war, cabinet, war cabinet officials felt the conditions were just not right at this point. I know in response, some of the families put out a statement saying you're fed up. But they are fed up with the indifference and the deadlock uh, that they are seeing in terms of those negotiations on the part of Israel. CIA Dr- Director Bill Burns has also been involved in some of those talks. You and some of the families also met with Bill Burns yesterday. Did he give you any sense of when these talks could potentially be restarted?
24: Well, first the, the talks are um, private, and we are—I can't share the adac- exact details. But what I can say is that Director Burns, just like President um, Biden, they are committed to making sure that the pressure is on. And um, while disappointing to hear that um, uh, the Israeli government has not sent him to continue those talks, we do believe that those talks are continuing. Okay. And as I said before, our our commitment is to make sure that these talks do continue. These are over 110 people, fathers, sons, and, lot, and children and mothers and daughters. And the thing that everybody has to understand, and this is where the pressure is, they've been there for 69 days, and many of them left with bullet wounds one, one young man without an arm, and their conditions are untenable, they're not eating, they don't have food, they're drinking salt water. And so for us to sit here and to say what should or shouldn't, we're not diplomats, we're just people who have family members. And while I am blessed that Abigail, our grandniece, returned to our family, I want people to remember that before she was kidnapped, she witnessed her parents, she and her siblings witnessed her parents being murdered. And so all of these hostages are people's family. Mm -hmm. And so that must be the most urgent matter that the Israelis
2: take on to get back these people to come back to their loved ones. And Liz, you have spoken about um, so beautifully, as have a number of other family members of hostages, how you all have become a family. You were very committed to this. As you noted, Abigail is home. That does not end this fight for you. How is Abigail doing A a couple weeks on now?
24: Well, Abigail is a beautiful four-year-old, smart, um, thoughtful uh, little girl who just wants to play with her siblings and play with her friends, kick the soccer ball, play the memory game. You know, on the surface, Abigail is okay. And on the surface, her siblings are doing great. And that is because they're with family. They're with their aunts, their uncles, grandparents, and, and their loved ones. And they are going to be embraced. And our job is to protect them and make sure that they have a beautiful life. And so Abigail uh, is going to be OK. But on the surface, she's wonderful. But what she saw, what she experienced, those are things that, as we all know, and mothers and fathers that are listening, we don't know what what those what, what is going to come from this. But what I do know is that she is getting a lot of love and a lot of care.
2: And she has a beautiful family. Liz, always appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, aid for Israel and Ukraine is in limbo. Federal spending talks still stalled, and there seems to be no breakthrough on border talks. But the House has time to debate milk. We'll discuss.
2: Does the body good? And CNN is the first Western media outlet to cross into southern Gaza to report independently without the Israeli military. Clarissa Ward joins us to talk about what she saw after this rare access inside the war zone.
7: Were you better off four years ago or are you better off today?
1: It is the critical question as 2024 kicks into gear. Donald Trump issuing a stark warning from the campaign trail last
7: night. If we're not elected, we'll have a depression the likes of which I don't believe anybody has ever seen. Maybe 1929. That's what's going to happen.
1: The clear Republican frontrunner moving to press what poll after poll after poll poll has shown as a clear advantage on the issue voters care most about, the economy. As for the evidence underpinning that dark prediction, while it's fair to say the timing probably could have been better on that front, Trump's comments came the same day the Federal Reserve painted probably the most optimistic view of the country's economic future in months. It came at a moment when inflation continues to show meaningful and consistent signs of dissipating. It also came just hours after the Dow closed at a record high for the first time in 23 months. Joining us now, Washington correspondent for Bloomberg, Anne-Marie Horton, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. I'm very glad you're here because <laughs> despite everything that happened yesterday on the economic front, The clear advantage Trump has on the economy is very real, and the clear disconnect between the macro economy and what voters think about what this administration has done is also very significant.
14: Everything is colored by inflation. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, and we have a new poll out this morning that just looks at swing state voters, is that when you, every economic issue, from kitchen table issues, consumer goods, groceries, to interest rates, they all trust the former president more. And it's the first time we actually see in our poll that Trump is now... Also ahead in Michigan, yes, it's with the margin error, but what Biden is losing is women who historically are the ones that really go see these grocery pi- prices, black Americans. But I think it shows that if Biden is losing those individuals that he won in 2020, he has a year to make them up. And when the macro data is showing that it is moving in the right direction for potentially inflation to come down. I would point out one more nugget on the yeah. economy in this because our poll looks at how you. we ask people, how do you feel about how the state of the overall economy is going for the country, for your state, for your local municipality. And more people feel better. There's more positive trends about how they feel their own town is doing and their own economic progress. So that's something the Biden campaign could build on. But overall, at the moment, they trust Trump more. Which
2: is, that is fascinating polling, right? Because what we have seen over the last several months is, yes, the numbers are actually pretty good, but people don't feel it. So if they are now, Scott, starting to say, we're feeling a little bit better about things... Where do you take that? The Bidenomics messaging, let's just be clear, does not seem to be working. No,
26: it, it's not the jobs. It's the inflation. Yeah. I mean, it, people don't, people do not feel like inflation is any different. They, it, you know, prices may be coming down a little bit. They got raised up so yeah, much. Compared to what? And, and so there's like this nostalgia, mm-hmm. you know, for the good old days of the Trump years. I mean, Biden ran on sort of getting rid of Trump and Trump's chaos but this inflation feels very chaotic for, for a lot of households. And the interest rates, I think this is, a, this is a core of the American dream. Can I afford to buy a house or a car if I wanted to? And a lot of people feel priced out of that right now. I mean, the average mortgage rate in this country is like double what it was under Trump because of the interest rates. And so people, people are looking back on the Trump days saying he seemed to have it under control. And they're looking at Biden saying not only does he not have it under control But he doesn't seem up to the job of getting it under control.
14: But one really important statistic I think we need to look at is the price of a gallon of gasoline. It is just over $3 a gallon. Trump last night was saying it's five, seven, eight, nine. That's not true anymore. And the height was last summer at $5. But it's coming down. So the only argument I have when you look a little bit deeper in the data yes, Trump, by and far, people, there's a uh, trust deficit with the economy with Biden. But by and large, The macroeconomic outlook, when you have unemployment below 4% and inflation is coming down, University of Michigan sentiment shows consumers are feeling a little bit better. It's just the timeline might be on their side, but they have a tremendous amount of work to do.
1: Yeah, there's no question about that. Scott, I want to ask you something we heard from uh, a ghost of everyone's capital past, Paul Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Young guns. The former Speaker of the House, rest in peace, young guns, that literally none of them are in Congress anymore. It was a very different time. But to that point, I think... Paul Ryan is still very reflective of where the Republican Party used to be. And there's still a lot of Republicans that are there. You're, I, I want to follow up on that head nod there. Um, but listen to what he said at a Teneo conference.
0: Historically speaking, all of his tendencies are you know, basically where narcissism takes him, which is whatever makes him popular, or makes him feel good at any given moment. And he and he doesn't think in, Ill, in, in classical liberal conservative terms. He thinks in, in an authoritarian way. And he's been able to get a a, a big chunk of the Republican base to follow him because, you know, he's the culture warrior.
1: Scott, I, I don't think Paul Ryan's general disdain for the former president is a secret. That was very candid, a level of candid he wasn't when he was Speaker of the House. How many people feel like that inside the party right now? Well, first of all, we should put
26: Paul Ryan down as a maybe on Trump next year and, uh, is it? Is a, a <laughs> year to work on him? Yeah, uh, just like Biden is a year to work on the economy, Trump is yeah, a year yeah. to work on
1: Paul Ryan. I'm sure. he's- Oh,
26: look, I, I think I think he's articulating the divide between the old school Republican Party elite leadership right. and where the vibe of the Republican grassroots is today. Uh, I think you know the people who love Donald Trump would be inclined to hate someone like Paul Ryan, and they did. Uh, because they just didn't feel like the leadership of the party at that time was being responsive to what they wanted, and that divide persists today. It's just that uh, it's just that the uh, Trump has got by far the largest share of that vibe share, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you you would hear that sentiment expressed all over Washington D.C. Inside but you would capital from a lot of people but you, who've endorsed Donald Trump. By yeah, that. but you wouldn't hear it. But you wouldn't hear it. You know, in Iowa, uh, uh, necessarily, from folks who were going into the caucus.
2: Um, look, there's been a lot made of the House impeachment vote that we yeah. saw yesterday. Also, what is or is not getting done. Hey, milk got done, <laughs> and that's a big win. Um,
14: how hey, much sorry. of a selling point is that? Yeah, at one point, the House floor was debating chocolate milk and whether or not we should allow we that. Actually, there was
1: a very important moment. Can we play the Congresswoman sound from the House floor <laughs> <variation? laughs>
7: The nutrients in whole milk, like protein, calcium, and vitamin D, provide the fuel Santa needs to travel the whole globe in one night. Whole milk is the unsung hero of his Christmas journey. Begs the
22: question, if whole milk is a good option to fuel Santa's extraordinary Christmas Eve journey, then why isn't it an option for American school children
1: in their lunchrooms. Can I contextualize for people real quick? <laughs> this might seem, why are they debating whether or not what Santa drinks? God always gives them bourbon, I'm pretty sure. Um, but also why is this happening on the House floor is related to uh, basically the government, federal government under the Obama administration putting in regulations that kept whole milk out of schools. Republicans have been pushing back about that. Also Democrats from ag districts with dairy representation. I've uh, been getting a lot of heat on it as well. It passed the House. Um, by a wide bipartisan margin. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just some Republican thing. You're dairy-free, so I feel like we got (laughs) to...
14: I give Santa almond milk, oat, soy milk. There was a
1: debate about almond milk and soy milk as well. Well, there's
14: a lot of people who don't actually want to call it that. They think it should be called... A not juice that or That was actually the debate beverage. on the floor. Did yeah.
1: I spend too much time watching the debate on the I think floor? Did. I may have. I may have. Where, where's Big Cookie in all this? I mean, why is why is Big
26: Milk getting all the You
2: mean Cookie Monster? Why, why, is he it, why are they getting for all the credit for,
26: for Santa's uh trip when Big Cookie's like, wait a minute. You know why? We're also providing energy here. <laughs> because um, dairy lobby is
2: <laughs> also the dirt. reindeer the reindeer are flying. <laughs> yeah. Where would they be without their carrots? This is
1: yeah. <laughs> we're asking all the right we questions. We have a lot to cover.
2: questions.
7: we're in trouble. We're
2: getting yelled at in our ears. (laughs)
1: Emory Scott, we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
2: Uh, On a much more serious note, the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States now has a number of students rethinking where they want to apply to college. CNN sat down with more than a dozen Jewish families who say their priorities have shifted. As incidents of anti-Semitism spike on college campuses nationwide, more Jewish parents are rethinking where they want their kids to go to school. Here's CNN's Gabe Cohen.
0: With growing concerns about anti-Semitism on elite college campuses.
21: I didn't think I would have to readjust a college list based on concerns about safety for Jewish students.
0: Some Jewish parents are reconsidering where their children will go to college with safety and how schools have handled anti-Semitic incidents on campus playing a huge role. running out of schools.
21: <laughs> you are kind of running out of schools. Okay.
0: Mirov and her daughter Anna, a high school senior in Atlanta, are still adjusting their list.
21: Our priorities have shifted
27: significantly. The shiny allure of an ivy has been dulled by their administrative responses to the current conflict.
24: As much as I admire resilience, I'd like not to have to be continuously resilient in terms of finding safety.
1: We've had
9: students completely revamp their entire application.
0: So Christopher Rim, who runs a company that helps students apply to top tier colleges, says some families are removing schools like Cornell and Columbia, both under investigation by the Department of Education after alleged threats to Jewish students as well as the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, and Harvard after last week's disastrous Capitol Hill testimony from their presidents.
14: Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate
24: Penn's rules or code of conduct, yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment
0: replacing those schools in some cases with colleges further south like Emory, Vanderbilt, and Wash U, considered by some to be safer for Jewish students. Do you get the sense that these students and their families are really willing to pass on the opportunity to go to one of these elite schools because of these concerns? Definitely. I mean, I've seen students who I thought would be a shoe in and for example, at
9: Columbia, completely make a decision to no longer apply their early decision
0: jennifer schultz watched her eldest son graduate from cornell like her father did decades ago but she's soured on the school since a series of threats to kill or injure jewish people in october ended with a cornell junior facing federal charges
18: after what happens on campus and the death threats to jewish students it doesn't feel safe
0: she says her youngest a high school junior won't apply there or a few other top-tier schools
18: there places that we felt very comfortable with. And it is devastating for them to be places where our Jewish children are not safe.
0: Now, we have seen a lot of schools take public steps to address these concerns in recent weeks. Columbia and Harvard assembled anti-Semitism task forces. And we saw Penn's president resign over the weekend days after that Capitol Hill hearing with the interim president already saying that every student should feel safe. But look, uh, Phil, Erica, it is important to note that supporters of Palestinian rights, free speech advocates, including a lot of students on these campuses, say that colleges really should not be silencing protests or any criticisms of Israel. And they worry that schools are heading in that direction. So they're really getting pressure from both sides here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Gabe, such an interesting story. Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Well, poison control centers across the country say they're getting a lot more calls about people accidentally overdosing on weight loss drugs. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will explain what's going on. That's next.
12: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: Oprah Winfrey revealing she uses weight loss medication. Oprah recently stunned at the Color Purple premiere. And then in an interview with People magazine, she didn't mean the specific drug she takes, but said the fact that there is a medically approved prescription for managing weight and staying healthier feels like relief, like redemption, like a gift and not something to hide behind and once again
1: be ridiculed for. But also this morning, poison control centers across the country say they're seeing a 1,500% increase in people accidentally overdosing on injected weight loss drugs, 1,500%. CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Sanjay, are these all connected? Why why is this happening? this, This is kind of amazing. If you look at
28: just
13: the number of prescriptions that have gone out there, it's skyrocketed. No surprise. These drugs have only been around a few years now, but just take a look at sort of what's happened over the past few years. Close to 2% of the population of this country has been prescribed this medication at some point. That's, that's, that's shocking. I mean, th- these are huge. And obviously, even around the world, this is prescribed a lot. As you prescribe more and more, you, you're not surprised to get more and more sort of accidental poisonings, overdoses, things like that. But I want to show you something else that I think is important here. You started to see the numbers go up. In March of 2022, all the shortages started happening. And what happened as a result? Pharmacies came in and they started making their own. They started making their own compounded sort of versions of this that were not tested for safety and efficacy. And you started to see the poisoning rates go up at that point as well. So that may be part of this. I think a lot of it also has to do, I don't know how many of you have actually seen the Ozempic pen. So this this is it. You open it up, put a needle on there, and then you dial in the dose that you're actually going to give yourself. You do that. So people starting to work with this may say, hey, look, it's working Let me give myself more and more of this. Mm -hmm. And and that could be part of the problem as well. They're just, they're overdosing on it.
2: So when we talk about this massive jump when it comes to poison control centers, what are some of the symptoms?
13: Yeah. You know, the way this medication works, first of all, you eat and then your body releases hormones saying, I just ate, I'm not hungry anymore. What this is doing, that hormone is called GLP-1. What this drug is doing is saying, let me just sort of make the body make that hormone so the body thinks it's just eaten. So that's essentially, you feel full. You don't have appetite. That's how it works. It also slows down the intestines. So you're not moving things as long as, as well. And that's why you feel full also. And as a result, these are the sorts of symptoms that people might have as a result of having all of what I just described work too well. That's, that's sort of the issue.
1: I'm still fascinated by the fact you could change your dose with the pen. You, that you do did. that, but, right. But if you have any of these symptoms, if you're somebody who feels like they may have overdosed, what do you do?
13: Well, so there's a poison control center, first of all, and people should know this number. We can put it up, 1-800-222-1222. We can put that number up there. Remember that number. That's a good number to have. If you're getting really sick, obviously talk to the doctor. But one thing to keep in mind is with these medications, unlike like an opioid, for example, they last a long time. So there's not an antidote for this, and usually about a week is the half-life. Wow. So people are going to deal with symptoms with this for, for some time. So, be careful with what you're taking and don't overdo the dosage. If it's working, let it work, but don't just start ramping up the dose without you know, thinking about it.
2: There's a reason your doctor gave you a certain dose, perhaps. That's right. Yeah.
13: It's been studied. So, use that. So, <laughs> it's, it's
1: it works. Yeah.
2: Sanjay, thank you. You
1: got it. Thank you.
2: And CNN This Morning continues right now.
3: After 11 months of this, no one can tell us what President Biden's crime was. They know their whole impeachment inquiry is a sham, and it will evaporate into thin air when people realize what a pathetic joke it is. The puppet master in chief, Donald Trump, has directed the sycophants to target Joe Biden as part of an effort to undermine President Biden's reelection. Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly in New York. Erica
1: Hill joins me. Poppy is off today. Republicans in the House, well, they're focusing on impeachment. Unanimously voting yesterday to launch a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden, despite many of them acknowledging that so far there's no proof of high crimes or misdemeanors.
2: And a big courtroom win for Donald Trump. That's how his campaign is painting it. A judge temporarily pausing that 2020 election interference case. So how long could the delay last? And ultimately, what could it mean for the 2024
1: election? And this morning, CNN goes inside Gaza as the first Western news outlet to gain access and report independently from the war zone. What our Clarissa Ward saw with her own eyes. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Then we begin this hour with a CNN exclusive. US Intel says nearly half of the 29,000 bombs dropped on Gaza have been so-called dumb bombs. That means they're not precision guided and can pose a greater risk or threat to civilians. This revelation comes after President Biden said Israel had been engaging in quote, indiscriminate bombing today. Biden's national security advisor is heading to Israel. The White House says Jake Sullivan will be having, quote, extremely serious conversations with top Israeli officials about reducing the harm to civilians.
2: And this morning, CNN is going inside Gaza. We'll show you a firsthand look at the humanitarian catastrophe, the dire living conditions for hundreds of thousands of civilians trapped in that area. CNN's Clarissa Ward uh, joining us now. So, Clarissa, what what were you able to see? What did you find?
25: So, Erica, we have been trying for many, many weeks now to try to get into Gaza. It has been impossible uh, for us. Up until Tuesday, we were able to travel inside with some medical volunteers who are working at a newly established, newly built field hospital that has been set up by the United Arab Emirates in the southern part of Gaza. As you know, the southern part of Gaza is now very much the focus of Israel's military operations. That is exacerbating an already dire humanitarian catastrophe and leading to record numbers of civilian casualties as we saw for ourselves. You don't have to search for tragedy in Gaza. It finds you on every street, strewn with trash and stagnant water, desolate and foreboding so we've just crossed the border into southern gaza this is the first time we've actually been able to get into gaza uh, since october 7th and we are now driving to a field hospital that has been set up by the uae up until now israel and egypt have made access for international journalists next to impossible and you can see why since October 7, the Israeli military says it has hit Gaza with more than 22,000 strikes. That by far surpasses anything we've seen in modern warfare in terms of intensity and ferocity. And we really, honestly, are just getting a glimpse of it here. Despite Israel's heavy bombardment, there are people out on the streets. A crowd outside a bakery. Where else can they go? Nowhere is safe in Gaza.
28: Used to be right. a stadium.
25: Arriving at the Emirati Field Hospital, we meet Sorry. Dr. Abdullah Al Nakbi. No sooner uh, does our tour begin when
28: so our ambulance that's a real life.
25: And this is what you hear all the time now.
28: Yes. At least 20 times a day.
25: At least 20 times a day?
28: Maybe more sometimes. Uh, but I think we get used to it.
25: One thing none of the doctors here have got used to is the number of children they are treating. The UN estimates that some two-thirds of those killed in this round of the conflict have been women and children. Eight-year-old Janan was lucky enough to survive a strike on her family home that crushed her femur, but spared her immediate family. She says she's not in pain, so that's good. Her mother, Hiba, was out when it happened. I went to the hospital to look for her, she says, and I came here, and I found her here. The doctors told me what happened with her, and I made sure that she's okay. Thank God. They bombed the house in front of us and then our home, Janan tells us. I was sitting next to my grandfather, and my grandfather held me, and my uncle was fine, so he is the one who took us out. Don't cry. But Dr. Ahmed Al-Mazrawi says it is hard not to.
3: I work with old people, like uh, adult, but with children.
25: Something touching your heart. Uh... Touches your heart and tests your faith in humanity. As we leave Janan, Dr. Al-Nakbi comes back with the news of casualties arriving from the strike just 10 minutes earlier.
28: We just got us. They will send right now two amputated uh, young uh, male uh, from uh, the, just the bomb. You from get.
25: the of we just heard, yes. from the bomb we just if heard? this
28: is uh, my understanding. Okay. They will arrive to our red area.
25: A man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in, both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. What's your name? What's your name?
28: The doctor asks.
25: The notes provided by the paramedics are smeared with blood. A tourniquet improvised with a bandage. Since the field hospital opened less than two weeks ago, it has been inundated with patients. 130 of their 150 beds are already full. So let me understand this. You are now basically the only hospital around that still has some beds?
28: I guess so, yes. Or maybe I'm very sure of that because they are telling me uh, one of the hospitals with a capacity of 200, uh, they are accommodating 1,000 right now. And the next door hospital, I'm not very sure, he said like 50 to 100, uh, it has maybe 400 to 500 patients. So at one occasion, he called me, he said, I have three patients in each bed, please take any, I said, send as many as you can. I mean, we've been here 15
25: minutes and
28: this is already what we're seeing. This is, you
20: hear
25: it, you see it. In every bed, another gut punch. Less than two years old, Amir still doesn't know that his parents and siblings were killed in the strike that disfigured him. Yesterday, he saw a nurse that looked like his father, his aunt Nahaya tells us. He kept screaming, dad, dad, dad. Amir is still too young to comprehend the horror all around him. But 20-year-old Lama understands it all too well. Ten weeks ago, she was studying engineering at university and helping to plan her sister's wedding. Today, she is recovering from the amputation of her right leg. Her family followed Israeli military orders and fled from the north to the south. But the house where they were seeking shelter was hit in a strike. The world isn't listening to us, she says. Nobody cares about us. We have been dying for over 60 days, dying from the bombing, and nobody did anything. Words of condemnation delivered in a thin rasp. But does anyone hear them? Like Grozny, Aleppo, and Mariupol. Gaza will go down as one of the great horrors of modern warfare. It's getting dark. Time for us to leave, a privilege the vast majority of Gazans do not have. Our brief glimpse from a window onto hell is ending as a new chapter in this ugly conflict unfolds. Now the death toll in Gaza as a result of Israel's frenzied bombardment currently hovers at roughly 18,000. If you do the math, extrapolating as the UN says that two-thirds of the casualties roughly are civilians, that uh, is about 11,800 civilians who have been killed in just over two months. And to give you a comparison, in the first year, Of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, according to an independent research organization, some 7,700 civilians were killed by U.S. forces. In 20 years, in Afghanistan, according to independent research groups, some 12,000 civilians were killed. So in just two months, you're now approaching 12,000 civilians, and that's the same amount who were killed in 20 years Uh, During the U.S.'s war in Afghanistan. So, this is truly staggering and unprecedented. Phil, Erica?
1: Clarissa, it's it's an extraordinarily powerful piece because you're taking us, one, in and two, to the personal stories. I think it's been difficult to some degree to come by because of the conflict and the type of conflict this has been. Your reference in the piece to uh, Grozny, Aleppo, Mariupol, uh, you've covered so many conflict zones, you've covered uh, some of the worst conflicts. Uh, that have happened in the last several decades, if not longer. How would you compare this to this?
25: It's always difficult to compare conflicts, um, but I would just say it is so striking that the people of Gaza have nowhere they can go, have nowhere that is safe. They are literally being told to move from the north as the north gets bombed. They move to the south and the south gets bombed. Now they're expected to move to a different area in central Gaza, and let's be very clear, it is not easy to move around right now in Gaza. We saw almost no cars on the streets. People do not have fuel. People are afraid to try to make road runs because of the risk that that incurs. And so, of course, you are seeing a horrific impact, not just in terms of the civilian casualties that we talked about, but in terms of the humanitarian crisis. You're talking about malnutrition. You're talking about the spread of preventable diseases. We talked to the doctors who said that they're treating cases of sepsis and patients are nearly dying, where these should be straightforward operations that can't be performed. They described one incident where a man had worms in a wound on his head because there is such a lack. Of a sanitary, uh, you know, any sanitary environment in which to perform surgeries or operations. So, this is a crisis of epic proportions. And the fact that humanitarian aid workers do not have the access that they need just makes it all the more staggering. One extra point that I really need to make here, Phil, because I think it's important. This was our first time being able to gain access into Gaza. But the journalists in Gaza have been doing heroic extraordinary work, day in, day out, at enormous risk. They have paid such a high price for that. This is the deadliest conflict for journalists that we have seen in decades. More than 60 journalists in Gaza alone have been killed In the last two and a half months, that is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. So you have a perfect storm here with massive bombardment, an inability to create safe zones, an inability to get humanitarian access where it's needed, and incredibly brave journalists who are doing everything they can to tell the stories and bring the reality to the world. the frustration of international journalists who can't get in to try to complement and supplement their efforts.
2: It is it is remarkable and such an important picture that you paint of all of those challenges in this moment. I was struck by in that field hospital, so much of what we've talked about has been what is needed in terms of medical supplies, as you just pointed out, um, and, and what that can mean but also the electricity. And there was so much talk about fuel in the beginning and fuel being needed to run generators at hospitals. How That field hospital that you were at, how was it able to operate and to run some of those Mm -hmm. machines and is it at risk?
25: So, Erica, because that field hospital is operated by the Emirates and because the Emirates have a normalized relationship with Israel, they are able to get supplies in, get fuel in, in a way that the vast majority of hospitals in Gaza are not. And even they face very real challenges, endless bureaucracy onerous weights at the border trying to get those supplies in, but what the doctor said is, uh, Gazan hospitals are referring their patients to the Emirati Field Hospital, they're coming in in a very bad state of shape, they don't have proper tourniquets even, which Mm -hmm. are a crucial thing in terms of stopping the bleeding, they don't have proper painkillers, the doctor told us they're needing to give vast doses of painkillers to people who are in extraordinary amounts of excruciating pain because these hospitals have just had to ration whatever minimal supplies they have. Also, this field hospital is very close to that border uh, with Egypt. And so, really, they are not a microcosm and they should not give you uh, any reflection or idea of what most Gaza hospitals look like. Um, They are a sort of island And that is why they are getting so many referrals from these other hospitals that are teetering on the brink of collapse. In fact, many of them just have simply collapsed and are therefore trying to refer as many patients to this field hospital as perfect as possible to try to get them some modicum of decent care.
1: I I will continue to be struck by the line. No one's listening. Uh, it seems like every patient either wanted to say or was saying to you. Clarissa Ward, it's uh, remarkable work. And to your point, there are dozens of journalists on the ground there that have lost their lives covering this. There are dozens still there covering it every day, have lost family members. um, And your work coming in and supplementing that uh, and adding to it is incredibly important. We appreciate your time as always. Thank you.
2: Biden administration staffers calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, holding a vigil outside the White House, the impact of this growing rift between Israel and the United States.
1: And Russian President Vladimir Putin holding his first end-of-the-year news conference since the Ukraine invasion. What he just said about detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich.
12: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
7: We stand before the White House tonight. On the seventh night of Hanukkah, and as we get ready to celebrate Christmas and the winter holidays with our loved ones, to make clear that we cannot stay silent about the atrocities that are continuing in Gaza. Over 800 of us have signed a letter to the President, Vice-President and Cabinet members demanding a ceasefire and de-escalation.
2: Current and former Biden administration staffers there are holding a vigil in front of the White House last night, as you just heard there, urging the president to support a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Josh Paul, who resigned from the State Department in October because he disagreed with the administration's approach to the war, was one of the few protesters who actually showed his face.
7: I think there's just a blindness to the suffering that the Palestinian people are experiencing on a daily basis. Thanks to the bombardment that we are facilitating, the bombs that we are providing, arms being provided by the people who stand in the building behind us, uh, I think that's something that we should all be deeply concerned about.
1: That all coming is the growing dispute between, at least private dispute, between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu started to spill more into the public view. On Tuesday, Biden warning that Israel was losing international support for its campaign against Hamas. He also told donors in Washington that Netanyahu needs to rethink his hardline and his government's hardline. Approach joining us now to discuss Ian Bremer, President of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, the leverage the United States has if they wanted to use it with Israel in the relationship uh, is significant it sure. would seem
23: well the u s is israel 's one stalwart friend on the global stage. You have seen that play out not just in terms of the military support but also in the vetoes at the Security Council when Everybody else that matters on the global stage is saying, no, we want an extended humanitarian pause. We want a ceasefire. And by the way, at the same time, we also want all of the hostages to be released. So it's not like they're only calling on the Israelis to take action, but the Americans have not done that. They have given the Israeli government room to run in going after and destroying Hamas for months now. They've been told in return, we've learned lessons. We went too hard. We were too indiscriminate in our bombings in the north. Netanyahu saying that directly to the Biden administration. But that has not led to a significant shift in strategy on the ground, nor significant reduction of Palestinian civilian casualties. And so increasingly you are seeing members of the Biden administration and now Biden himself coming out more publicly and saying, you guys really have to start changing tack.
2: So we have Jake Sullivan in Israel. And, Jake, you know, as Phil, Rob, we are all talking in the break. The real question then is, with Jake Sullivan there today, what does he actually say?
23: Um, I, I think he says that uh, this is going to become more uncomfortable for you, sir, publicly, if you just—it's not just going to be our friends telling so you privately. That, I mean how,
2: do, how does it become more uncomfortable, and at what point is that discomfort so much that there is some sort of a change.
23: Well, the potential for permanent damage to the U.S.-Israel relationship, given opposition on the ground, given the feelings of the American people, especially young people, um, that is real. And Israel is, Netanyahu may not care because he's Mm -hmm. facing an ouster and potential jail time. But, and that's part of the problem, but it's not just Netanyahu. There is a unity war cabinet. And Biden needs to be clear that while he is the best friend of the Israeli people, he is not the best friend of Netanyahu. And you'll remember back in 2015 when the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal, was being pushed by Obama and Biden, Netanyahu came to Congress and tried to torpedo it, undermining the U.S. president. U.S. president is treating Netanyahu with so much more respect than Netanyahu ever would have treated an American president. And yet the U.S. is the one that writes the checks. The U.S. is the far more powerful country. So I, I think, for example, Biden giving an interview directly to the Jerusalem Post and to Haaretz, splashed all over the front covers that Netanyahu wakes up to, and and saying, here is what we find unacceptable about what your prime minister has done and is doing. The Israeli people have no support for this guy. Why are the Americans providing cover for him? That is, so far, they've only been criticizing him privately. That can change. And I I am certain that Jake is delivering that message.
1: But do the Israeli people have, whether they have support Netanyahu or not, I think how they feel about him and his his government leading up to this moment has become very clear uh, in what you see in terms of the interactions that have happened in public. But the effort itself in the wake of October 7th and the horrors of October 7th, basically saying,
23: what do you want us to do here? We have to get rid of Hamas. They agree with him on that. Yes, they do. And if you, if you think about, you know, the people that were killed on October 7th, it wasn't like Israeli settlers, hard right wing. I mean, these are right. some of the most, you know, progressive Israelis out there. Th- there is a very strong view among the Israeli people that number one, Uh, No one on the global stage really cares for them, even after the most unspeakable violence against the Jews. So they have to go and keep going. But that's very different from the way that they engage in the war fighting. That's also very different to, you know, the the fact that, that there isn't an urgency of timing here. Israel is vastly more powerful than Hamas, vastly more powerful than Hezbollah, than militarily, right, than their enemies in the region. And so their ability to, I mean, they could come out and say, let all of the hostages go and we can talk about a ceasefire. They've been unwilling to do that, even though the hostages are not about to be all freed. Right. Why not take that position? Why not have more international support? Uh, in the early days after the, uh, the, the terrorist attacks, Macron came to Israel and said, we are with you. Uh, we see this as a fight just as it was against ISIS, against al-Qaeda. We'll join you in this fight. Why couldn't there have been an effort at multilateralism? like the Americans did with NATO friends after the invasion of Ukraine, because Netanyahu has been driving this by himself and feels like he can get away with it. That is a problem, right? And, and, and ultimately that's where the Biden administration is getting itself in trouble because the US is now more isolated globally on this issue and increasingly divisive challenges on the ground at home um, than the Russians were when they invaded Ukraine a couple of years ago. That's an extraordinary thing to say yeah. for our top ally in the Middle East, right?
2: Ian Bremmer, appreciate it as always. Thank
1: you. Thank you, See you guys. Okay. Well, a judge pauses Donald Trump's federal election subversion case. What that could mean for the March trial date.
2: House Republicans, meantime, launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. One key thing, though, not clear. The evidence that he committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Our next guest, though, is someone who testified at the impeachment hearings of three different presidents. Let's take Biden's ahead.
1: House Republicans voting to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, a step they hope will strengthen their oversight powers as they investigate Biden family's alleged foreign business dealings. Even though the year-long investigation up to this point has failed to uncover any wrongdoing explicitly by the president, which some members have actually acknowledged. Do you have proof that Joe Biden acted corruptly to help his
9: son? The impeachment inquiry is not about proof.
17: And I don't know that you're going to see a high crime or misdemeanor.
9: How close are you to being ready to support... Impeachment, actual impeachment of the president. We're not there.
1: The vote unfolded hours after the president's son, Hunter Biden, defied the Republican investigator's subpoena for a closed door testimony after he demanded to testify publicly. Here's how the spokesman for the White House counsel's office, Ian Sands, responded in our last hour.
17: They're just making up lies to attack the president in a relentless smear campaign that, frankly, has been going on for four straight years now. We went through an impeachment in the last administration over these same made-up allegations. And Republicans in the House are just rewinding the tape and running it again to try to score political points against the president instead of doing their actual jobs for the American people.
1: Joining us now is Michael Gerhardt, a professor at the University of North Carolina's law school. He testified at the first Biden Biden impeachment hearing hearing and the impeachment hearings for President Clinton and Trump, his upcoming book, The Law of Presidential Impeachment is out next month. We appreciate your time. We start with the idea that an impeachment inquiry is not about evidence or launching an impeachment inquiry is not about evidence. This is what we've heard um, from some Republicans in historical context, is that true?
5: Generally speaking, it's not true. Uh, impeachment inquiries have historically followed investigations which have found credible evidence of presidential wrongdoing. Based on that evidence, then the House proceeds to initiate an impeachment inquiry of the president. That's what happened with Richard Nixon. It happened with Bill Clinton and it happened with Donald Trump.
1: You've heard a lot of Republicans say we need this to be able to uh, have our compulsory powers kind of expanded, particularly in courts. Um, Is that an accurate frame in terms of the power that this uh, conveys upon them?
5: It, it is in part, I, I, I think uh, using the impeachment power as the, uh, as the basis for any further inquiries does in a sense expand, reinforce, enhance the House's power. But we should also keep in mind there's a 2020 Supreme Court decision in a case called uh, Trump versus Mazars, which said that it's an illegitimate purpose for the House, even if it's using its impeachment power to um, uh, try to do law enforcement on the one hand, and also to conduct a fishing expedition. expedition. And right now, even based on the comments that you just shared from some Republican House members, they don't think there's evidence yet. And so they want this inquiry as basically a fishing expedition to help them find whatever it is they're looking for. Which
1: I think brings up the, the, the question I've had for the last several months, um, especially having covered the, both Trump impeachments. The, the threshold right now is, has impeachment moved to just a purely political exercise? And if that's the case, why?
5: That's a great question. In fact, I think that's the key question. I think part of this impeachment effort against Joe Biden began back in 2019, even before he was a presidential candidate, well before he was president. And I think there was a threat made even back then that next time a Democrat's up, the Republicans in the House will impeach that person. And I think what we can infer from what is happening is that there's an effort to gut impeachment of any seriousness, to turn it into exactly what you just said, just a, another political weapon. That's not what impeachment is supposed to be about. It's, it's a rarely used process to address verifiable presidential misconduct.
1: Yeah, it's a remarkable moment. Uh, Professor Michael Gerhardt, the book is The Law of Presidential Impeachment. It's out next month. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Republican
2: presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy dishing out a litany of conspiracy theories at last night's CNN town hall. Abby Phillip will join us live on what surprised
21: her the most.
1: And access to the abortion pill now in the hands of the Supreme Court. We're gonna discuss the real world impact and the political ramifications ahead.
9: If you had told me that January 6th was in any way an inside job, the subject of government entrapment, I would have told you that was crazy talk. Fringe conspiracy theory nonsense. I can tell you now, having gone somewhat deep in this, it's not.
2: Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy there doubling down on his conspiratorial views when it comes to January 6th. That, of course, was during the Iowa town hall last night on CNN. And important to note, he did not stop there. Joining us now, the person who's been tasked with fact-checking, Ramaswamy, in real time, which is uh, no small feat given the uh, number of conspiracy theories thrown out there. Abby Phillip is live for us in Des Moines, Iowa, this morning. Abby, good to see you. Great work, uh, as always, my friend. Was there anything last night that did, though, surprise you? I know how you prepare for this moment, but was there anything that came out of his mouth that was surprising in that?
11: Well, look, I I, I mean... First of all, good morning, guys. Um, But Erica, it it is not a surprise that this is how that January 6th exchange went. Um, He described it as a fringe conspiracy because that is exactly what it is. It is a it's a conspiracy. And we and I knew that he would come into it defending it. But one of the things that we wanted to point out to him that led to that exchange was that one of the defendants who's going to serve 11 years in prison cited uh, his use of this conspiracy on the debate stage last week and I, I wanted to know how he responded to that. Uh, so I, I think folks who watched it last night would have seen you know, pretty combative exchange in part because uh, I, I think that they're just obviously on the right right now and you heard it from the crowd. Uh, there is a lot of openness, if not support, for this idea of January 6th. But uh, that aside, I mean I think one thing that I thought was was interesting in all the other parts of the town hall. Uh, This is Iowa. This is a very conservative state. This is a state with a lot of uh, incredibly religious people where the evangelical right is a huge part of it. And he got a question from our audience last night about his faith. He is uh, the only candidate in the race who is not a Christian, uh, he's Hindu. His family came from India, and he was asked about how, uh, he, you know, his faith would would play a role in his candidacy and in his presidency. Uh, Ramaswamy was obviously armed with an answer, but I think some of the people in the audience were surprised uh, by how well versed he was in biblical language. He went to a Christian school growing up. I think there was uh, some interesting appreciation for. That approach from him, and it just gives you a window into how a candidate like him is trying to make inroads in this state, predominantly white, very conservative, very Christian, not normally amenable to a, a you know a brown Indian man, uh, but he's trying to get at that in other ways as well.
1: Yeah, it's funny you point that out. I've had several people who watched last night point to that moment and that exchange you had uh, as one of the most fascinating of what ha- what was a very very good back and forth. Um, throughout the evening. Abby, can we take a step back, particularly because you're on the ground? And so I'm going to take your field reporter uh, yeah. opportunity to, to get your sense of what's happening right now. Abortion. Uh, you asked uh, Vivek Ramaswamy about it yeah. last night. You're in Iowa where this is a huge issue. But big picture wise, especially with what the Supreme Court's doing now on MIFA-Prestone, how much do you yeah. think this issue overtakes others when it's all said and done?
11: Mm. I think that there is a difference between what will happen here in Iowa in a Republican primary and what happens in the rest of the country. And and actually, it's for that reason that, you know, when I asked Ramaswamy about whether he thinks the Supreme Court should ban Stone at a national level, to be honest, the answer was not straightforward. He wanted to take this to the administrative side of things. He says uh, the, this is about the role of the federal government in regulating drugs. He did not want to make this about abortion per se. Uh, I pressed to, to be clear for the audience, do you think that the abortion pill should be banned? And he said, I think the Supreme Court will do the right thing. So look, to me, that says that even in this state, which is very conservative, most people in that audience probably oppose abortion, this is still not something that Republican candidates want to be talking about explicitly. They have to talk about it, their base cares about it, uh, but many of the candidates right now are trying to find this sort of compassionate, conservative viewpoint that will give them flexibility if they make it to a general election, given that in all these red states that have put referendums out to the to the public about what they should do about abortion, they have defended abortion rights even in red states, and I think that is really being felt when you hear the candidates and on the ground.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's such a great observation and it's so true. They are they are clearly hearing what the voters have said, and they are looking ahead to see that. Abby, um, great work is always appreciated, and a reminder you can catch Abby tonight, 10 p.m. right here guys. on CNN News Night with Abby
1: Phillips. Well, privilege, race, equality, some of the same issues we're dealing with today, they're at the center of season two of HBO's The Gilded Age, the stars of the hit show, here
22: in studio. Next. New York is where society puts itself on display. The leaders meet each other and their children court each other. The old guard think they can keep out the new people with impunity, but nothing stays the same forever.
21: The
1: HBO series The Gilded Age is in its second season and tells the story of New York City's high society during the late 1800s. Here's a look at the new season.
22: New York is where society puts itself on display. The leaders meet each other and their children court each other. The old guard think they can keep out the new people with impunity. But nothing stays the same forever. But I don't just want a husband Dante. He is rich. He's even handsome. What more could a girl ask for?
1: It's a great show. It's in the middle of its second season. Joining us now, members of the cast of The Gilded Age, Morgan Spector, Christine Baranski, Cynthia Nixon, (laughs) Danae Benton, Carrie Kuhn and Louisa Jacobson. Mm-hmm. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. I, I want to get to the show in a second. You seem to actually like one another <laughs> quite a bit. Is that a fair assessment?
22: What's not to like? Yeah,
1: right. Yeah.
14: We really love each other. Just a bunch yeah. the theater
15: kids. I think that's yeah. how we get along. Yeah. Yeah. It's,
14: it's the theater, theater camp. camp. It's
15: theater It
1: It How do you think the, the, the theater kid, the Broadway experience, your guys' resumes are uh, pretty remarkable, uh, plays into this show specifically, this cast specifically?
22: I mean, anybody who's worked on the stage for a while, eventually you do a corset play, and you, sure. you know, night after night, eight shows a week, in a corset, you know, okay, this is my world, this is how I speak, this is how I carry myself. And it's, I, th- I think a lot of us have just real theater training and chops, so yeah. Um, and a sense of ensemble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Everybody's yeah, working about right. telling the story and not about, you know, standing out in a room, throwing oh. the ball back and That's forth. That's
1: right. You mentioned the costumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aesthetics of fashion is not my specialty but you can't possibly ignore the extraordinary costumes how they all come together the set is also mm-hmm. unbelievable but morgan the characters as well some of them are directly adap- adaptations from real people some of them are uh, akin to people or have through lines through how do you prep for that knowing that there's
15: a historic parallel to who you're playing Um, the, 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 the the real sort of analog that I was given initially was Jay Gould. So I, um, I read a bunch about him and he's a, he's a really fascinating character. I mean, a lot of these people, the sort of American myth that you can, you know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you could sort of turn your, you know, the rags to riches stories. And these guys really were that, you know, these, these were, these were tough. These were hard men.
20: But such a Um, devoted family man. But such a devoted family man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
15: And he, you know, liked to tend his orchids, but yes. And he was, so he, (laughs) that, that duality, of of being sort of truly ruthless in business, mm-hmm. um, but loving and tender in, in in his domestic life. I think what's, what's fascinating to
1: me is you guys are able to thread together the dynamics of race and class and gender, like labor disputes, things that are obviously still very much issues uh, today. It's subtle, it's nuanced, and it it doesn't feel like a blunt in your face. This is the issue. You realize that it's all together mm-hmm. threaded in that time period.
21: I think
22: Julian Fellows really knows his audience. I think he knows that they want to be entertained. They're coming for the costumes. They're coming for the real housewives, you know, style disputes. And he's
21: also then able to enter the the time period obliquely and sort of bring in these other factors that were sort of bubbling under the surface. You know, we're not not dealing with the complexity of the, you know, economic disparity necessarily, but he is sort of tiptoeing into all those worlds. So people are, the, the awareness is always there.
14: Right, I would say to follow up on that, He's really wonderful at using human stories that are quite
27: personal to reveal and deal with uh, bigger themes. And um, and Sonia Warfield and Erica Dunbar were really instrumental in being able to create that nuance in the worlds that Peggy moves through. Mm -hmm. We were really able to collaborate with Julian in um, just adding those textures so that they don't feel quite um, like icing on the world, but still actually get to be rooted in their own um, rich internal lives. And so it was special to get to kind of alchemize what that could be.
15: There's a real there's a real wit, uh, I think, to cutting from uh, Peggy being in mortal danger Mm. to, you know, this is the soup going to be delivered without spilling uh, and I think it, there's a there's a temptation to see this as like two separate storylines, but actually, I think when you go from one into the other, you see oh, this is this <laughs> is what privilege is. This is what wealth is. It creates right. a world where the stakes are just right. absurd, as opposed to yeah. life and death.
24: It's a, such a fascinating period, but it's also so like our own. It's mm-hmm. there's a new class of people. Mm-hmm. Then it was industrial revolution money. Now it's tech money, yeah. um, mm-hmm. just bubbling up from you know from. No seemingly from nowhere, and challenging the status quo and and so much disposable income that <laughs> in, in sort of a grotesque way African Americans you know, striving for I- equality and immigrants uh, facing uh, prejudice and maybe competition that as they saw it with African Americans and uh, you know women trying to push the envelope and trying to have the right to vote,
22: much less you know or, or even have careers.: It certainly is a, a, about the fear that certain people, certainly my character, <laughs> feels about a world that is in you know in danger, in danger of being lost forever. Yes. and her sense of values and her place in the world and her concern for her niece and her sense of uh, anger that, that a whole societal structure, is, is crumbling. She looks across um, the street and sees a Trump tower. You know, she <laughs> thinks, what is this? Who, who are these people? They're not our people. They care more about money and showing off money. So uh, it's a it's about a world in transition. And I think we're living in a world of, in transition now.
1: Some of you have been on massive hit HBO shows before. Some of you have amazing resumes, but this is the first major HBO hit. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that informs the approach, if the experience for those that have the uh, ability to talk to those who, have, who haven't, if that <laughs> plays any role at all.
27: <laughs> for me, it's been so special. I think when I originally got cast in this, I didn't know how much um, how much the, like black audiences would feel seen or or care about this show. And um, walking around Brooklyn like I mostly get stopped by black women and it's so special because uh-huh. Uh-huh. they're like oh my god <laughs> like it's us like they really oh. it's really us and it feels um it's just more special than I expected mm-hmm. it to be that um that it just feels so claimed I also get
21: stopped by black women
27: they all recognize Bertha too I love we, no we <laughs> do stand <laughs> Bertha we really <laughs> stand about
21: bad- you know,
27: and it's what totally. it gets done needs
1: yeah. to get done. The show really is extraordinary. The costumes, the set, the acting, the writing. I really appreciate you guys coming in. Thank, oh, you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. pleasure, pleasure. Nice to be here.
27: Thank you.
2: So fun. Well, the season two finale of The Gilded Age airs this Sunday at 9 p.m. on HBO and will also be available to stream on Max. And in another story of one New York City's elite Rudy Giuliani set to take the stand today, pushing back on claims that he should pay millions of dollars for defaming two Georgia election workers after the 2020 election. Plus, the Dow reaching a new record high. Futures looking up. Uh, This was uh, just a little bit, of course. We have about a half an hour to go before the opening bell. So stand by for that and
12: much more. CNN New Central starts after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
3: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com callmecountry country. Max subscription required.